Last week I misspoke when I said that Matthew 12, 8 was where we stopped our our study last uh, August. We did go through this section, but as we get back into Matthew, we're going to go through it again from a different angle and see some different emphases that will also prepare us to see this pivotal point in the story of actual Jesus. Um, And I want to ask, just put this question in your mind, how many people are going to spend eternity in hell simply due to unwillingness to say three words? We'll come back to that at the end of the sermon. But let's uh, pass through this section first, verse by verse, Roman numeral one. We'll go through it verse by verse, beginning with verse nine. I've translated it for you here in the Greek text, from the Greek text. Verse nine says, and he moved on from there and came into their synagogue. Well, from there, that was Matthew 12, 1 through 8, which was a Sabbath controversy. And I remind you that Matthew 12 starts with, uh, follows Matthew 11. Sometimes the chapter divisions um, make it harder for us to notice the flow. But at the end of chapter 11, Jesus had invited all and said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and you'll find rest for your souls. Rest, rest, rest. And then here in chapter 12, what do we see? But a controversy on Sabbath, which means rest. The law was not able to give rest, but most especially the leaders of that day were not interested in giving rest. They were interested, as Jesus will later say, to tie up heavy burdens put them on the people's back that they don't carry themselves with a pinky. So uh, having said that, then we move into this controversy in uh, verses 1 through 8 as the disciples are simply following Jesus through a wheat field and begin to eat some of the grain and the Pharisees jump them and accuse them of breaking the Sabbath. But Jesus uh, stands up for them and points them back to the Word. We're going to look at that more closely and again and afresh in just a moment. But as Matthew flows, you would think that this would be on the same day, but it doesn't seem to be the same day. I've mentioned to you in the past that not every section in the Gospel is chronological. Some, it, it is generally chronological, but sometimes when Matthew hits a theme, he'll bring in something else on the same subject and then return to the chronological flow. Luke 6.6 says uh, specifically that this was another Sabbath. But apparently the same crowd and definitely the same sort of issue. And so Matthew pairs the stories together for us uh, to show us Jesus coming into a synagogue on the Sabbath. I just want to ask a question now, and we're going to return to it later. But I would ask this to anyone who has some reason he thinks for not going to church because church isn't good enough for him. None of the churches around are good enough for him. And Jesus goes to a synagogue. Was the synagogue good enough for Jesus? What was your excuse again for not going to church as the Lord commands? But let's move on to verse 10 for now. Verse 10 starts off very strikingly. Matthew says in a, in a clause without any finite verb, he just, he just lays this down, and look, a man having a shriveled hand. Wow, how vivid that is. I mean, Matthew was right there, and he wants us to be right there too. And so it, it's as if you were to say, he goes to, this, he goes to their, their synagogue on the Sabbath, and lo and behold, looky right there, a guy with a shriveled hand. Because he wants us to think, oh, what's going to happen now? What's Jesus going to do when 
What are they going to say about that? Well, Matthew sets us up and then he moves along. He says, and look, a man having a shriveled hand. Shriveled hand, a paralyzed hand. A, a hand, uh, shri- the, the word literally means dry. So the idea is you think of a, of a tree that's uh, living and full of sap and its branches will be flexible and, and living, but if it's dried, they're shriveled up and they're dead. His hand was like that. Whatever the cause of it, it was a shriveled hand. It was a dried up hand. It was immovable. He, it was good for nothing. It had no use. It was dead. So... Uh, they questioned him, Matthew writes, saying, is it allowable to heal on the Sabbath in order that they might accuse him? Well, look, superficially, aren't they doing what we'd want them to do? What would we have told those guys? That we would have said to them, look, go to Jesus. Watch him. Listen to what he says. If you have questions, ask him questions. Watch what he does. Well, don't they do all those things? They do all those things. So why don't they come to salvation? Why doesn't their observance of Jesus lead them to saving wisdom? They do everything we'd ask. Most everything we'd ask. And yet it doesn't result in salvation. I'm going to return to that later, but it just reminds me of a joke. Uh, forgive me, I'm sure many of you have heard it, but there was a, a guy named Joe Bob who had a friend named Bubba. And Bubba could not be impressed by anything. He was like the, to- the character in the Dilbert comic strip named Topper. He'll always top anything you says. So if Joe Bob's wife achieved something, well, Bubba's wife achieved twice as much. If Joe Bob's son got an A, well, then Bubba's son got a triple A. You know, if, if he gets a luxury car, he gets a triple luxury car. He's absolutely unimpressible. And so one day, Joe Bob stumbles on something that he thinks, oh, this is going to do the trick. So he goes on a hunting trip with Bubba. They're duck hunting, and they're out in their blind, and some ducks fly by, and uh, Bubba shoots a duck, and his dog swims out and brings it back. And then some more ducks are flushed out, and Joe Bob shoots a duck, and his dog gets up and walks on the surface of the water and goes and picks the duck up and then comes right back. And so Joe Bob is, you know, looking. He looks over at Bubba to see him be impressed. And Bubba says, huh, dog can't swim, huh? (laughs) And there are just people like that. And these are people like that. Now that's funny, but this isn't funny because of where it takes them. Because they've put themselves in a place where nothing Jesus does or says will reach them. Why? We'll return to that later. Verse 11, but he said to them, which man will be from among you who will have one sheep? And if this sheep falls on the Sabbath into a pit, will he not grasp it and raise it up? Notice the emphasis, falls falls on the Sabbath into a pit. Will he not reach out and raise him up? Now, what Jesus asks was a live issue. Not everybody was agreed on that. You've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Qumranian community. They'd have said, no, no, you leave that sheep in the pit. They, they wouldn't even assist their animals in giving birth if it was on the Sabbath. They were on their own because that would be work to them. And what about the specific issue of healing? Well, rabbis, rabbis said that if it was a matter of life and death, maybe you could do something to help somebody. Was this a matter of life and death? 
No. So Jesus asks them this question, and he brings them into it. He doesn't say just in principle, but he says, which man from among you will be in this situation? One of you guys, and you have one sheep that falls into a pit. You'll raise it out of the pit, won't you? Now, the implication is he expects the answer yes. The implication is that everybody knowing these guys would know, well, yeah, absolutely. They would not leave their sheep in the pit. If their sheep fell into the pit, they would definitely pull it out, even if it was on the Sabbath. So then Jesus in verse 12 says, therefore, how much more does a man matter than a sheep? Well, our friends in Peta would say not at all, right? A dog is a pig is a boy. That's what they say. But to God, of course, the answer is a man is infinitely more valuable than a sheep. Genesis 1, 26 through 8, God creates the man and the woman in his image and gives them what? Dominion over all the cattle and the birds and all the animals. They are over because they uh, are in the image of God. They are the image of God. And then in Genesis 9, after the, after the, the flood, what is God say to Noah, you can kill animals and eat them for meat. So obviously to God, human beings are infinitely more important. But to them, (laughs) to them, well, the question is how much more does a man matter than a sheep? To them, the sheep had monetary value. The man, not to them. In fact, do they even see this man? This man here, this man in their midst with a shriveled hand. Luke says it's his right hand. Dr. Luke is always noticing little details like that. So he's got a shriveled right hand. And do they even see him? Not as a person, not as somebody needing help. What do they see him as? He's a tool. He's someone to use to get to Jesus. He's just a a theological question. He's 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 a doctrinal question. He's just a thing. He's an object. He's a tool to be used by their malice. Do you see then how brilliantly Jesus with this velvet-covered brick of a question actually, how, how brilliant he is, how brilliantly he constructs this question to them? He gives a a principled response. He doesn't specifically answer the question, is it allowable to heal? He says, well, you have a, a sheep that falls into a pit. Wouldn't you pull it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? And then he comes to the conclusion, it's allowable on the Sabbath to do good. And that's, he has in this just absolutely got them. He has absolutely convicted them because it's the Sabbath, right? And what are they doing right at that moment? And what will they do as soon as the doxology is sung in the service? They're looking for a way to kill the Messiah. Is that a good thing? Is that a good thing to do on the Sabbath? Is it allowable to seek to murder Messiah on the Sabbath? You see how Jesus just brilliantly, absolutely lands them and puts them in his creel, and he leaves them nowhere to turn. Yeah, are they doing good? No, they're not doing good at all. Here's a question that could have been turned in their hearts, uh, but their hearts were turned a different way. Verse 13, then he says to the man, Stretch out your hand. I shouldn't have even moved my arm when I said that. There's no indication he moved a muscle. He just says to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy as the other hand. Notice that. It's worth noticing 
There is no note here that Jesus moves a muscle. He doesn't touch the man. He doesn't even give a command. He doesn't say, be healed. He doesn't do anything. He just says, stretch out your hand. And so, think of this. Do you see any sign of Jesus working? And yet, by what he does, the man can work now, next day. What do you do without a right hand in that society? It's an agricultural society. Assuming that you're right-handed, as most people are, what could that guy do? What could he do? What, what trade could he work without his right hand? But Jesus has restored him, and now he can go back to work. And Jesus has done it without the slightest outward sign that he's done any work. So what are the Pharisees going to do now? Are they going to say, well, all right, that didn't work out. We blew that. We're going to have to look for another opportunity. Oh, no, no, no. They'd already made up their mind. They already knew what they were going to do. And what Jesus did for that man moved them to work on that Sabbath, but not to work good. It was perfectly permissible for them to hold a council on the Sabbath. Verse 14, But the Pharisees came out and took counsel together against him in order that they might destroy him. You just have to stand back and marvel at the spirit of legalism here. It is evidently not allowable to heal a man who's put out of the workforce by a shriveled hand. But it is allowable to get together and talk about how to murder the Messiah. That's okay to legalism. So this is a great escalation. Heretofore, there's not been talk about destroying or killing Jesus. Heretofore, there have been clashes. There have been mutterings. Why does he do this? How can he do this? Why do you do this? Why don't you do that? But now, now it's escalated. Now they want to destroy him. You just, we're going to come back to this, but destroy him. Why? Okay, we've got to destroy the Messiah because, checks list, he healed on the Sabbath. <laughs> what is going on here? It's what's going on in their heart. So here we have, at this point in the narrative, the shadow of the cross lifts up and looms on what we're reading here. The whole is seen in microcosm. You have the whole picture here. You have the mindless malice of the religious leaders and the blameless perfection of the Son of God and them deciding, well, this world is not big enough for both of us. He's got to go. He's got to go. Their only choice to their minds now is to destroy him. Except really... Is that their only choice? But to their minds, yeah, it's the only choice. Why? How do you get there? We'll return to that in a moment. Now let's do it Roman numeral 2. We've seen verse by verse. And now we're going to look at it person by person. With three personal points of focus and reflection for us. First, let us consider... The Lord, letter, capital letter A, the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And I want us to think together about his, his person. Because you see, his foes have it exactly wrong, don't they? What do they think the roles are? They think they're in a role to judge him. He needs their approval, and they are 
not only able but entitled to judge him and to issue a verdict on him. But the truth is exactly the opposite, isn't it? They don't judge him. He judges them. He doesn't need their approval. They need his approval. In fact, the thing about Jesus that we need to see to understand him is his absolute assurance as to who he is. I want to go back and show you something we didn't particularly note before. At the first part, open your Bibles if they're not opened, and look at the start again. Matthew 12. Now, we've studied this, but this is this, uh, this is the disciples walking through the wheat fields and eating on the Sabbath. How does Jesus respond? Where does he point? Well, first he says in verse 3, haven't you read what David did? Now remind me, what was David's role as an adult? What was his, his calling as an adult? What was he? He was a king. So first Jesus points to a king in response. Where does he go next? He goes verse 5. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? So he's gone to a king, and now where does he go to the priest? King, priest, am I seeing a pattern here? What does he go next? Look at verse 7. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned to the, condemned the guiltless. What's that? That's Hosea 6.6. 6. What was Hosea? Prophet. King, priest, prophet. Huh! That's interesting, isn't it? What one person can bind in himself the office of king, priest, and prophet. Messiah. Let's say Messiah first. And what is Jesus then identifying himself when he does this? And yet, even more, let me point something out. He's identified with a king, but but look ahead at verse 42, where he says, the queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation, condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So, yes, he appeals to a king, but he's greater than a king. And then how about the priests? Uh, He appealed to them in verses 5 and 6, but look again at verse 6. Something greater than the temple is here. And we saw when we studied that, what a breathtaking thing that is to say. The temple is where the very presence of God was sought and worshipped, and he's saying something greater than that is here, meaning himself. Greater than a king greater than the temple where the priests serve? Well, that leaves prophet. Hmm, look at verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and with this generation condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. A king, but really more than a king, more than any human king, more than the temple, more than a prophet. Jesus knows exactly who he is. Now, there's a, there's a, a need today in storytellers that it, whatever person that he has to, is the, the focus of the story, he's got to have an arc. He's got to have a conflict in, in himself. Uh, you fans of the Lord of the Rings, you know that in the books, the character Aragorn is going to be king of Gondor. There's never any doubt in his mind. That's what he's going to be. He's sure of it. He's got a path to go to get there, but that's what he's going to be. He's all in. 
But when they did the movie, that wasn't a modern character. And they had to rewrite his character. And they remade him into someone who was full of angst and self-doubt, who didn't want this road to kingship. He wasn't worthy. He was afraid he couldn't be a good king. Not at all like the character in the book. And people have tried to do the same thing with Jesus. Jesus Christ Superstar, when I was a teenager and other things, have tried to point him. But the record has absolutely nothing of that. Not the slightest hint. The first words we hear out of 12-year-old Jesus' mouth are what? You knew I had to be in my father's house doing my father's business. There's never a moment at which he doesn't know who he is. And here he absolutely knows who he is. That's something that, that is very important to keep in mind. The only issue is, do you know who I am? When he, asked the, he doesn't ask the apostles, who am I? <laughs> what does he ask them? Who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? Do you think he's taking a poll to make up his mind? No, he's looking to see if anybody is seeing it. He's asking, is anyone seeing it? And Peter does. And he pronounces a blessing. The doubt is not in him. This is an important issue. I'll, I'll show you how in just a second. But look at his acts here. Look at, look at the way he proceeds here. Did this have to happen? He could have asked the guy to come back the next day, right? There would have, at least this conflict would have been... The guy wasn't going to die because he had a paralyzed hand. He could have just, he could have just gone around it. And you've got to understand these guys who are looking at him and watching for something to accuse him of, they're the, they're the, the blue check accounts in Twitter. They're the influencers. They've got a million followers in Instagram. You know? They're the guys who, who mold opinion. And if it mattered to Jesus to have those kind of people on his side, that's the place to, to find a more peaceful route in between and avoid a conflict. And so the man would just have to live another day with this misery. Pfft, what's that against the greater good? Clearly not the way Jesus saw it, is it? It's just clearly not the way he saw it. They don't even see the man. He sees the man. And so he's going to, he sees a man that he can do good for, even though there's no record that the man asked for it. So Jesus does not start this fight, but equally Jesus does not walk away from this fight to save himself trouble, because that's just not Jesus. He sees a man he can do good for, and he's going to do it. Now I want you to notice this again then about Jesus. This is something I absolutely love about the person of Jesus. We saw in the first part that he could easily have thrown the disciples under the bus. Remember? Pharisees said, why do your disciples do what's not permitted? And he could have said, oh yeah, guys stop, stop. Sorry, you know, you got to work with what you got. And been embarrassed about them and thrown them under the bus. And similarly could have said here, well, you know, actually nobody needs to heal this guy today. I'll just do it tomorrow. But in neither case does he do that. He stands in front of the disciples and takes the heat and deflects it and gives it right back to them uh, with interest. And likewise, similarly here, he takes up for the man and then he turns around and he heals them, even though, of course, to his mind, he knows exactly where that's going to go. But that just doesn't bother actual Jesus. He's not that kind of guy. He's a guy who does good wherever he can. In fact, he embodies what his half-brother later says in, in James 4.17. Do you know that one? It's a very important verse. James says, Therefore, to the one who knows the good to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. He doesn't just say, to him who knows something is wrong and does it, that's sin. 
He says, if you know the good thing that, you're, that you should do and you don't do it, that's sin. Jesus knows the good thing to do. And he does it. He heals the man. And notice again how well Jesus ties them up. So think about this with me. Their issue is what? Work. Work on the Sabbath. And is healing a category of work on the Sabbath? Well, let me ask you a question then. Have you ever thought about this? Now, the, the outcome, you know, is that they're furious and they go off and figure this, how do we kill this guy? How do we get rid of this guy? Well, did Jesus work though? <laughs> did he work? What, what work did he do? I ask you, show me the evidence. What work did he do? Does he move a muscle? No record here, except to, to open his mouth and say some words. Does he so much as touch the man? Not that we see in the record, absolutely not. In fact, does he even say, be healed, or I will heal you, or I'm healing you? Does he say anything like that? No, he doesn't. What does he say? Stretch out your hand. (laughs) Under any definition of the word, is any of that work? Well, it is if you grant that Jesus had the supernatural power to heal. (laughs) Now, do you see how he's tied them up here? For them to say he worked, you can imagine some kind of clueless observer who's come late to this trial, and they're saying, well, what's going on? We need to destroy Jesus. Oh, well, he worked on the Sabbath. Oh, what did he do? He asked a guy to stretch his hand out. Okay, and, well, and then his hand was healed. Okay, and, well, that's it, he worked. Oh, So you're saying he had the supernatural power to heal that guy's hand. Isn't that what we should be talking about? But no, no, not to them. But you see how absolutely and utterly Jesus tied them up. To say he worked, they'd have to grant that he did work with the power of God. And they're going to kill him. And this is really why they had to destroy him, because there was no way they could beat him in any way. You see, they had, what was their answer to his question about the the sheep? Nothing. What was their response to doing good on the Sabbath? Nothing. In fact, the other Gospels make that point. They didn't say anything. He asked the question. They just kept their mouth shut, stared at him. They had nothing to his person. They had nothing to his wisdom. They had nothing to his power. And so for this... Well, they must die. He must die. He must die. In effect, admitting another powerful miracle, another sign, but not looking where the sign is pointing, do you see? How brilliantly Jesus tied them up. How brilliantly he tied them up with such a simple, gentle response. And I want to point out to you, I normally don't do this, I'm preaching Matthew, and I don't talk a lot about the parallel accounts, but I do need to note, this is because this is the character of Jesus, and we want to know Jesus, and this is part of knowing Jesus. Mark chapter 3, here's how he tells it. He says to them, is it permissible on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save a soul or to kill? And they remain silent. And the next verse is what I want you to listen to. And after looking around at them with fury, with wrath, being grieved at the hardness of their heart. That's our Lord. He's not concerned in the first place what they're going to do to him or about him. He just is wrathful and grieved 
that they would have such hard hearts. They don't care a bit about this man and his need. And then he says, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and, it was re- and his hand was restored. Mark 3. So that's our Lord Jesus, absolutely sure of himself, so far above his critics. I think of a, a recent president of whom a, a commentator said that he was always the least qualified man of any room he walked into. Don't try to guess, though you probably could. Jesus was exactly like that, except the other way around. He was always galaxies ahead of whatever room he walked into in this synagogue. It's no exception. Secondly, let's look at the man. (laughs) What? How are you going to make a whole sermon point out of this man? He doesn't do much. Well, let's look at him. Letter B, the man, the man with a shriveled hand. Well, indeed, he's nameless. We don't know what his name is. He doesn't say a thing. He doesn't do a thing. Well, that's not exactly true. He does a couple of things. Let's return to that. We don't know his name. We don't know his hometown. We don't know his biography. And yet he's pivotal, pivotal to this whole tableau. Without him, there's no story. So he's kind of the center of it, the wordless, nameless, biographyless center of it. But his being there, his very being there is worth noting and reflecting on. Did he have reasons not to be there? Well, as people tout up the reasons for not going to church today, he had abundant reasons not to be there. He had presumably an unsightly disfigurement. And it says his hand was shriveled up. That's a description of what it looked like. It looked dried up. It was, and it's, it's funny how the human eye, without studying, you just immediately pick on something that's a little different if somebody's missing a finger. If, if something is just even a little bit, mm, whatever your, your, your psyche thinks is standard, you, you just pick that right up. And he walks in, and there's that shriveled hand that everybody looks at. And having a shriveled hands, uh, the odds are he was also unemployed, maybe living with his parents. You know, we just have to speculate, but like I said, there aren't many trades that you can work with without your right hand in that day. And yet, even though he had reasons not to go, there he is in synagogue. There he is. Jesus tells him in Mark to stand up in the middle of everybody. There he is in the middle of everybody in synagogue. Let's put it this way, in the way of obedience. Say it again. In the way of obedience, regardless for all his reasons not to be there. His reasons not to be there. And there, in worship, Jesus finds him. And there, in worship and obedience, Jesus heals him because he was in the way of obedience. Now that makes two remarkable presences, two remarkable presences in that synagogue that day, doesn't there? It's remarkable that the man is there, even though he had arguably better reasons for staying away from church than some people who have stayed away for months or years or basically never gone at all, and yet imagine that they're Christians. He had better reasons than they, and yet he's there. Well, what's the other remarkable presence at that synagogue? Well, Jesus. Because what's he possibly going to get out of that synagogue? What's it going to do for him? <laughs> what benefit is it going to give him? And yet how many people do you know who say they don't go to church because there just isn't a good church around? Well, good enough for them. Good enough to give them what they want good enough to meet their standards. Did this synagogue give Jesus what he wanted? Yes, but not the way I mean it. Did it meet his standards? Well, yes, 
but not the way I mean it. Because why did he go? To serve, to give. Oh, that makes it a little harder to come up with an excuse not to go to a church because it's not good enough, isn't it? Because they don't do things just right. Because they don't do things just perfect. The sermons aren't quite deep enough. The music isn't quite up to my standards. The fellowship isn't quite what I'm looking for to serve me. But what if you go to serve, like the Bible says to do countless times? What if you do because, go because God commands it, as God does in countless ways? Well, that's what the man did, and that's what Jesus did. Jesus went there. So you have to ask yourself, are my reasons for not going to church, that it's not good enough, was this good enough for Jesus? And I have a challenge. Well, that's why I don't go to church. I have a challenge. Yeah, but is it a challenge you could overcome? Well, honestly, yes. Then why don't you? The man did. The man went, and that's where Jesus found him and blessed him. So, this is a remarkable thing to see the both of them there. And then, oh, before I go on, what if your attitude, what if a person, the person I'm talking to, his attitude is, well, I need God to do something for me, then I'll go. Ah, is that what your relationship with God is? Then he buys your obedience by doing what you want him to do. Except that's not how it works. Not really. Not the fear of the Lord. That's not the fear of the Lord. So here we are, and and what does Jesus do? He tells this man to do something that is at least difficult, possibly impossible. Why do I say possibly impossible? Because the Greek word for hand can also and often does take in the forearm, not just the five fingers, but the whole forearm. So it could be that his whole arm was, was paralyzed. It could well be. So either it was something he'd be reluctant to do because he's embarrassed, very likely, about it. He want to hold, doesn't want to hold it out, or maybe it's something that he actually couldn't do because he was paralyzed. And yet Jesus tells him to do it. Now, what if that man had said, well, I can't do that. Heal me first and I'll do that. But Jesus says, do it. And the record simply says he does it. And when he does it, his hand is restored whole like the other hand. Makes you think of Jesus at the grave of Lazarus, kind of, doesn't it? He says to this stiff, stiffening dead corpse, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus says, be right there. Why? Well, with his command, he gave the ability. And so here, with his command, he gives the ability. And so the man responds by stretching out his hand. Now, that's a striking thing, isn't it? But I just wonder if there's somebody who would be listening to me preach that and they'd say, oh yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. When Jesus called him to do something, he needed to simply do it in faith and then trust Jesus to give the ability. How many would hear that and nod right along and yet in their lives, there are ways for years they have known what Jesus has called them to and they're not doing it because, because, because. Well, because I'm afraid, because I have my fears. Okay, so you're saying when he heals your fears, then you'll obey him. Well, I don't know enough. Okay, when you know enough, then you'll obey him. Well, I'm not strong enough. Okay, when you're... Do you see the pattern here? And yet, what does this man do? Jesus says, stretch your hand out. But, but you, you know that Jesus wants you to become a member of the church, commit yourself to its discipline, leadership, and serve. 
but you're afraid to, you're reluctant, you're this and that and the other thing, and it holds you back. You know that Jesus calls you out of your little safe personal rut and your cliques, and, and he calls you to reach out to people and speak to them and show them love and interest and minister to them, put their interests ahead of yours, not just hang with people who are easy and comfortable, but reach out and look for needs to meet instead of things that are easy. You've known that for years, and yet, but, 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 but. And yet, Jesus says, hold out your hand. And he holds out his hand. And when he does it, it's restored. Ah, friend, you believe in Jesus. Believe in Jesus. You believe in Jesus. Obey Jesus. Step out and trust him to give you the ability as you obey in faith. That's how it works. So we've considered the Lord. We've considered the man. Now let's consider the Pharisees. Let her see the Pharisees. Well, I want to start off with a remarkable thought. They actually knew a lot about Jesus, didn't they? I mean, they knew a lot of true things about Jesus. They knew he'd be at the synagogue. Indeed, he was. So they knew that about him. They knew what his character was. And they just knew. Now, uh, this strikes me, and this has struck me for years. They just knew that when he saw this man, he'd want to heal him. And that's kind of why Matthew says, and look, a man with a shriveled hand. What do you think Jesus is going to do? They knew what he was going to do. Isn't that remarkable? They knew that much about his character. Oh, yeah, look at that guy. Yeah, Jesus is definitely going to want to heal that guy. Definitely. So they knew he'd be in synagogue. They knew he would want to heal the man. What's the third thing they knew? He'd be able to. (laughs) Yeah, he would do it. Because otherwise, wouldn't they say, oh good, let's watch him try to heal this guy, and when he fails, we'll ridicule him and show him up for the fraud that he is. That never comes up. There's only one time I can think of where they even try that. The man born blind in John chapter 9, and I think it's to his parents, right, that they say, well, we don't even believe that he was born blind. And they say, well, actually, he was born blind. Now, we don't know how he can see. But he was born blind, so that idea didn't work. So they don't try that much. They don't try to say he doesn't do these things. You know, just like the charismatics today aren't. Never show. They never show. They're always talking about things that happened somehow off camera. People flew through the air at that meeting. I've heard that a number of times. People flew through the air, and nobody had a camera to catch that. A thousand camera phones, and not one person caught people flying through the air. I'd like to see that. I think flying's cool doesn't happen. They have to talk about it. With Jesus, they knew he'd simply do it. So they know all these things. You say, oh, well, they must be saved. There is a school, maybe some of you have this in your background, there's a school of thought in Christians. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that God raised him from the dead. You're a Christian. You accept those two things as true, you're a Christian. Well, they knew true things about Jesus. Did that make them saved? (laughs) Well, clearly not. Why? Because what does faith involve? We had a series on this. What does faith involve? Well, it does involve recognizing the facts of the matter. You've got to know the facts, and they had that. And it involves realizing that they're true, and it involves resting, embracing them, committing yourself to them. Did they have that? No. No, they had the information, but it just made them hate him more. Isn't that something? They knew true things about Jesus, and the true things they knew about Jesus just made them hate him more. So why did this encounter with Jesus not bring them to wisdom in life? 
they did things we would love to get our husbands, wives, friends, children to do, and they won't even do these things. But these guys, they went to Jesus. They looked at Jesus. They watched him. They watched what he did. They heard him speak. They asked him questions. They, they heard his words. They saw his works. I mean, couldn't you say they gave Jesus a chance, like the bumper sticker says, give Jesus a chance? Oh, I hope I never see one of those in our parking lot. Please, please. But they gave Jesus a chance. They tried Jesus. I've seen that bumper sticker too. They tried Jesus, and they would say that, wouldn't they? They'd say, we gave him a chance, we tried him, and then what would they say? But he failed our test. Oh, now there's the thing. They did not get their roles right. They did not get their roles right. They started wrong, and what happens when you start wrong? Oh, you'll end wrong. <laughs> you'll end wrong. You point south, you won't end up north point east. So they're pointed in the wrong direction, so they never get there. What does the Bible say? Let me give you some scriptures that tell you exactly what the problem is. Proverbs 1-7, you know, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of knowledge. Ignorant fools despise wisdom and discipline. The fear of Yahweh, that attitude of heart and mind that takes my place on my knees at his feet to learn and obey, to hear his word and accept it. Again, listen, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So if I want wisdom and understanding, I've got to start with the fear of Yahweh. Now somebody might say, well, they had that right, because they said they believed the law, and they studied it, and they obeyed it after a fashion. Uh, but add one more verse, Proverbs 22.4. This is a verse that the, the Legacy Standard Bible translates better than other versions Proverbs 22.4, the reward of humility, the fear of Yahweh, are riches, glory, and life. Now, do you hear what they say? What Solomon says, the reward of humility, the fear of Yahweh, are riches, glory, and life. So humility and the fear of Yahweh are interchangeable. To fear Yahweh is to take my place under him. And where are they putting themselves in relation to Jesus? over him. But he's greater than the temple. And he's greater than Solomon. And he's greater than Jonah. What are they greater than? Not Jesus. And yet they position themselves as his judges. And so Proverbs 14, 6 says, a scoffer seeks wisdom and finds none. But knowledge is easy to one who has understanding. How do you have understanding? You fear Yahweh. What's the fear of Yahweh? Humility. Did they have any of that? They did not. So they externally sought wisdom, but they didn't find it because they didn't start in the right place. Here's them, Proverbs 18.2. A fool does not delight in discernment, but only in revealing his own heart. Why? Because since the fall, our default setting is to be as God's. Our default setting is to believe with no doubt that we are authorized and have the right to be the judge, even of God. He says, I'll surely die. I don't think so. He says, that fruit will kill me. I think it'll make me wise. I'll go with my gut. I'll follow my heart. And that's all of us. A fool doesn't delight, delight in discernment, but only in revealing his own heart. And so in 26, 12, Solomon asks, do you see a man wise in his own eyes? 
There is more hope for a fool than for him. And that was these guys. And that is why even face to face with Jesus, they didn't gain wisdom and they didn't gain salvation and they didn't gain eternal life. Now, to bring us to the day, I want to ask you, are they in any way like the typical unbeliever that you meet in your home, on the street, at work, at school? Are they like that person at all? Well, on the one hand, these people you meet today may have no religion at all, and these people are very religious. They may have no formal religion at all. But on the other hand, look at Romans chapter 1, and verse 18, Romans 1, 18 and following, I just want to remind you a couple of things. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, what? Suppress the truth. Now, in order to suppress the truth, what must first be true? I must possess the truth, but I suppress the truth. And this is what Paul says about all men by default setting, apart from a regenerating work of the Spirit of God. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, they're without excuse, verse 20 says. They're without excuse. Oh, but they've got stories about the church and this and that and the other. Yeah, but without excuse. God still testified to himself. No matter what sinful people did, God still testified to himself. But verse 21 is where I really want to land. For although they, what? Knew God. Wait a minute, what? What does he say? Oh, they knew God, but they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Now, I, let me put that into this situation. Even though they knew Jesus, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. You see? They knew who he was, and they hated him for it. Just like the two pillars of atheism. Number one, there is no God. Number two, I hate him. Because they all know there is a God. They all know there is a God. We all know there is a God. It is hardwired into us. And that's why going this path, verse 22, claiming to to be wise, insisting that they're wise, they were made morons. So how do we evaluate the unbeliever's demand for evidence? He says, well, you give me evidence and I'll believe. You Christians have never given me any evidence. That's what you, every atheist just cuts and pastes, just cuts and pastes. You haven't given me any evidence. Well, did the Pharisees lack evidence? Not at all. <laughs> not, not in any way. And, and, and you see Jesus later in the chapter, they, after the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, where Jesus says, that's it, they say, well, give us a sign. And he says, yeah, I'll give you a sign, the resurrection from the dead after you kill me. And that's it. That's, that's all he says they're going to get. But I digress. Let me come back. Did they lack evidence? No, they didn't lack evidence. So was the problem lack of evidence? Never. Never in any way was the problem lack of evidence. Fast forward to today. Is the unbeliever's problem a lack of evidence? Never, in any way. He is surrounded by it outside of him and inside of him. And every time a fresh evidence raises its head, head, what does he do? Suppresses it. Until the Holy Spirit gives new life and regeneration, opens blind eyes, and uh, gives life to a dead heart. This is our default response. So, Here's, here's what I want us to think about then, some vital truths that we learn from this. First of all, I want us to, to, to take away, 
Every encounter with God's Word is a crisis. You say, yeah, for those unbelievers. Oh, no, I mean for all of us, for every one of us, believer or unbeliever. Every encounter with God's Word is a crisis. Why? Because God's spoken to us. And the truth is we always respond. You might have been thinking, oh, yes, we really should respond. No, no, we always do respond, basically in one of two ways. Either in saying, speak, Lord, your servant is listening, and then in carrying it out, or in saying, yeah, I'm kind of busy, and finding some way of not responding to it. And what I want you to see, and what I've tried to say for all the time I've been here, and I will say it until I'm sure everyone's heard it, and I'm sure everyone has not heard it at this point, and when I'm sure everyone's heard it, I hope, well, it will be the case that we will have visitors, and so I'll have to say it again. And here's the thing that I say. The thing that I say is every time God speaks, we respond, and they all count. They all count. They all matter. They will all come up at the judgment. As Jesus will later say in this chapter, every idle word will be judged. And so every time we respond to God's words, which aren't idle, every time gives us, it puts us in a crisis judgment position. And every response of ours to God's words is a step towards heaven or a step towards hell. Now, this is exactly what's happening with these guys. They have had crisis after crisis after crisis after crisis. We had one at the start of the chapter. Here's another one. And every time they find some way not to listen to God's word, not to let it penetrate their heart, not to see it, not to hear it. And every time they do, they're headed further and further in the wrong direction until Jesus says they commit the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit for which there's no forgiveness later in this chapter. How did that happen? By millimeters. Well, they were born as sinners, yes, but every time, the, every time they heard the Word of God, they sealed their doom all the more by their response to it. They all count. So first, every encounter with God's Word is a crisis. Second, God's call, and it should be our call, is to repent. And you see, this is why. Our call is not to try Jesus or to give Jesus a chance. Our call is to repent, because it's not an issue whether Jesus is true. The issue is, will you, will you submit to that truth or not? That's the issue. And the only proper response is repentance. Repentance always begins with demo work. Everything gets torn down, and we start building again, but this time on the Word of God, under the authority of God, in humility, fear of the Lord, under the Lordship of Christ. But repentance is the not give Jesus a chance. He doesn't want a chance. He wants repentance. Thirdly, so when we reach out, we reach out with the, to the lost with the hope of winning them. We reach out with God's truth and pray that God will open their eyes to it. But listen, we do not reach out to the lost hoping to win them for our sake. I'm going to open that up. We want to win them for their sake and for the glory of God, but not for our sake. Because we don't do it hoping that our faith will be confirmed by their repentance. Are you following me? We don't need them to agree with us so that we can feel sure about our faith. That's not the right way to reach out. In fact, that's a doomed way. I was told the story of a young man who liked to go to atheist forums. He professed Christian faith and he liked to go to atheist forums and argue with the atheists and ended up becoming an atheist. 
his arguments didn't convince them. And so evidently he concluded, well, they must not be good arguments. And so he went over to the other side. Well, no, we don't talk to people about Christ hoping that they can make us feel better about our faith by converting. Because remember, Jesus knew who he was and he didn't do what he did so that he could feel confident that he was who he was. And that should be the same way we talk to people. We know who Jesus is. I hope you didn't think I was going to say, we know who we are. That's, that's not where I'm going with this. That's not the basis for evangelism. The basis for evangelism is knowing who Jesus is. And we just go and give his word. And if somebody rejects it or accepts it, the word is still true. In fact, the rejection confirms the word. The word predicts this, that this will happen. Uh, in the case of those that God doesn't sovereignly work on their hearts by grace. So we present God's word because that's what God calls us to. We don't think that our technique will do it. And when it doesn't work out the way we hope, we don't immediately blame our bad job of it because we didn't, you know, if we'd said the right words, that person would have believed. No, no. Jesus said the exact right words and they wanted to kill him for it. In fact, they wanted to kill him precisely because he said the right words. Had to be done away with. Made them feel bad about themselves. Worse still, he made them look bad. I think that's the heart of it. We'll get into that more in this chapter. I think that's the heart of it. He made them look bad. And that, to a celebrity, is the unpardonable sin to them. That's their unpardonable sin. Make me look bad. Oh, no. No, no. So we bring out the Word of God to make Jesus look good. And we pray the Holy Spirit will show them just how good Jesus is. And we know that uh, only by the Spirit of God giving them new life, giving them eyes, will they come to that faith. So we pray a lot. We don't think our arguments will do it. We think God's word will do it in the hands of God's spirit. And so we bring the one and pray for the moving of the other. So closing this up then, they had eyes, but they didn't see. They had ears, but they did not hear what was right in front of them. Why? Because of their hearts. I said at the start that many would be going to hell because of their unwillingness to say three words. What do you suppose those three words were? I was wrong. I was wrong. Life and forgiveness and eternity with God are on the other side of those words. But sinful, proud, arrogant, I will be as God man, cannot say fundamentally, I was wrong. Because you've got to say those three words before you can meaningfully say the three words that bring life. Jesus is Lord. I will only see that Jesus is Lord when I have seen I was wrong. And they can't see the one, so they won't see the other. They're unwilling. And I would say to a believer, the same thing will hold you back in your life. And I have seen a great many people who do not grow because they, they can't say those three words. Show them what you will from the word of God, but they just can't bring, it in, bring themselves to say, I was wrong. So they've got to stay where they are and defend that position to the death. Ah, but there's such liberation. <laughs> Confronted with God's truth and simply saying, I was wrong. To them, it would have brought life. To us, it will bring growth the willingness to see. When the word of God shows us to have been wrong, to simply say, I was wrong. And so when Jesus says, stretch out your hand, instead of stretching out 40 excuses for why I can't, I stretch out my hand. 
Let's close in prayer.